What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Uncensored Critic Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me again for another episode. I really appreciate you tuning in once again. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome onto the show one of the most prestigious directors that has had a tremendous career across the world, Mr. David Grinley. And it gives me so much pleasure to welcome him on the show today. David is a stage director and he has directed countless shows across the world. Some of his play, the plays that he's directed across his vast and impressive CV include Othello, Pride and Prejudice, Black Comedy by Peter Schaffer, The Real Inspector Hound, A Midsummer Night's Dream, which went to the Stratford Shakespeare Festival in Canada. Jeffrey Bernard is on Well, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And of course, the big one, which we're going to talk about in a lot of detail today, which is Journey's End by R.C. Sheriff, which he's directed three times. One in 2004 at the Comedy Theatre at the Duke of York's and toured uh, the UK twice in 2007 on broadway which he won a tony award for the best director for the best director for the best revival of each of a play and in 2011 on tour at the duke of york's starring a certain james norton which i'm sure you'll see i would have seen in happy valley on itv recently and so yeah uh david thank you so much for coming on today i really appreciate you being here how are you sir yeah good thank you yeah thanks for having me i appreciate it yeah, no problem, no problem. Um, so yeah, so to begin at the beginning, uh, as Dylan Thomas says, uh, so where did the love of directing for you start from? Where did it come from? It came from my mum. My mum's uh, Scottish and was, um, I used to, I was born and um, spent the first eight years of my life in uh, Scotland. Uh, my dad, is, who's English, uh, worked for British Steel at the time. He was uh, an engineer at a, a very well-known uh, steel mill called Ravenscrave, which is in a place called Motherwell, uh, <coughs> of Glasgow. My mum uh, had, from a very early age, been uh, a member of the Paisley Players, uh, which has got quite a, a, a good reputation in terms of, uh, out of the area my mum grew up in Scotland, comes actors like Coxley, Kenneth Island, and even David Tennant is the... Um, son of the provost or, or, or the, the essentially the the priest uh, in the local area my mum comes from so um uh that's where it came from because when my mum uh, we moved south to um sussex in 1978 because british still was going uh, down this morning and my uh, my dad saw that he was likely to be made redundant so he was forced to a job uh in sussex in brighton in an engineering consultancy and when she um it came to our village that um, she still isn't today. In fact, where I uh, I, I grew up uh, from the age of eight, uh, she um, joined the local uh, amateur dramatic society and uh, got busy to work getting getting uh, stuck in with it as much as she could do as possible. She um, did act, but she always preferred directing. And when her style of directing was like when she'd do a show, she would. Um, I'm sure a lot of people know this that. Um, Samuel French do um, uh, publish play scripts and at the back, and they're published play scripts of the prompt copy of the show uh, to have the stage editions in that the, the original deputy stage manager put in uh, the original script. And the um, at the back of each Samuel French is a uh, is a list of the props, lighting, uh, and there's also a design. And invariably, my mother's amateur dramatics would, would copy this design precisely, and mm -hmm. they and she would have blown up not in the photographs back then on a, a sort of Xerox machine, and she put it on an ink blotter on our dining room table, and she'd get my little yellow, uh, my little Lego men, and she'd um, move people around the set uh, to decide how she was going to uh, direct them for the following rehearsal. And I'd come down as a kid, you know, at the age of six, the age of ten. And, and, and 
and uh, intimately through my childhood see her through, see her do this and and it just sort of fascinated me and indeed obviously i obviously obviously always saw the finished works and indeed everything my um the village drama society did and i was very much um you know looking at that thinking oh, i'd have done this or that and and then uh, at school i didn't do much at, at, up until i went to sixth form and then at sixth form I had the opportunity to direct a boss at school and then at university. I went to the University of York in uh, 1989 mm-hmm. uh, to 92, which actually was quite a, 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 there's quite a cohort of people who've, who went on and did stuff. There was me, uh, I met my wife in a Sean Holmes play, who's mm-hmm. director associate of the Globe at the moment, and is, uh, um, uh, was director of Hammersmith, Lyric Hammersmith. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Simon Stevens was in the same college as me at York. So it's quite a it's quite an active scene, and I did a lot of stuff there with Chairman of the Drums, Chair President, uh, director stuff, acting stuff. Uh, and at the end of that time, I took a show to Edinburgh, um, and then from that moment on, originally at the end of um, university, I, I was keen to be an actor. I actually auditioned for Bristol Old Vic and uh, Robert Douglas, as was, mm-hmm. um, but it was a complete disaster. I, I, I have a gap in my teeth, which. I have gap in my teeth, so I'm obviously a bit sibilant. So the, the world, the words missing from my teeth. But equally, also, I do look like a bit like a cross between the old comedy actor Harry Hill. And so, you know, I was never really going to play the game. So, as a result, uh, I quickly shelved the idea of being an actor and uh, and and found my passions being a director. And fortunately, that you know, I, I haven't really looked back. It's been a, I've had a fantastic time. That's great. Um... I'm just curious to know what what Simon Stevens like uh, in person because he's great. I mean, he's the most lovely man, and yeah. and he's a you know he's uh, he was a massive. Uh, we we you know being at university in the late eighties was kind of the height of the indie music scene. We'd all sort of grown up with the Smiths, a lot of the Manchester bands, and you know obviously Oasis, Right to etc. And it was you know it was the, uh, the, the in the heart of the the rave scene as well. And obviously, Simon's a massive musical fan, and I vividly remember just the, the you know, the, you know, his interest and in just how kind of uh, knowledgeable he was about that. And just, 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 just every time we didn't do much together, you know, passing across that much, um, but he was, he's always been a, a, a sensational, uh, friendly, really smart, uh, very, very, you know, uh, astute about. Uh, most things and um every time you meet him and I've, you know met him subsequently after leaving university on a few occasions he's always um uh, fantastically um you know welcoming and willing to to re-engage with yeah because I, I saw his play um uh sea wall their one-man show with andrew scott uh, a few yes. years ago and it's one of the most beautiful pieces of writing i think i've 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 ever seen or heard and and of course, his play um, "Pornography," which was based around the London Seven Seven bombings, yeah, he's just a vastly talented writer. And uh, yeah, the fact that you just knew him at university—that's that's really cool. Yeah, he's it incredibly huge. I think the most important thing about Simon is he's incredibly human. He's he's, he's got a yeah. real great depth of you know he, he's he's got a, a great sensibility for humanity. He really cares. He's got you know great emotional resources as well. So he, you know he really takes all the boxes. You know. So. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm very glad that I, I, I passed across. A, 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 yeah, a great writer. Well, well, please and please say hi to him for me next time you see him. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, cool. So let's jump into uh, your vast involvement with Journey's End by R.C. Sheriff, and it's one of the most 
celebrated plays, I think, of the last well of the last century, but particularly not only because it's set in World War One, but just everything that it encompasses about the war in such I think from a human level as well. I think that's something that we're going to talk about. I've got a few questions about that. But just to kick off with, what was the first? Uh, how did you discover the play? Did someone give it to you? Did you pick it up in? Yeah, my brother, my brother studied it at um, a school, and he said, "And this is when we were kids." He said, "You should, uh, you should look at this. This is good. I'm doing this." Hmm. And in fact, when we actually started the rehearsal, I, I used my brother's um, original text as a kind of touch point. My brother um, died in the late, uh, sorry, in the early '90s, so it was just that for me uh, coming to the play with uh, with that in mind with him being the sort of uh, uh, catalyst of my interest in it was was a, a, a you know an added reason for me to be very emotionally committed to, to getting the play right when we did it and mm. then uh, I was just very fortunate in the way that um, it came about in that um, prior to uh, prior to Journey's End uh, arriving I, I made headway in the late uh, 90s. I did a production. Uh, I was a, I was assistant director. The first big break in theatre was at uh, Chichester Festival Theatre. I was mm-hmm. assistant director there between uh, 96 and 98, working numerous shows at tour and then went into the West End. And um, in and it and it was then it was run by the um, well-known impresario and uh, producer at the time, Duncan Weldon. Mm. He left in 1997, uh, and they, they were kind of, it was it was a very abrupt departure. It was um, essentially something left for a crowd. Mm. And um, the new management were under a great deal, were sort of um, running to catch up with themselves. So there was, they were behind in the scheduling of the season that year, in the 98 season. And so they were desperate to get people being there before we knew the road to hit the ground running, et cetera. So, uh, they approached me to return. I didn't really want to go back as an assistant director, but I agreed to go back to assist if I could get a chance of directing in the, the Merva Theatre, which is a small theatre down there. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, we had no money. It was very much, very much as uh, um, back to what Sam Mendes did when he first arrived there in the late eighties, where he, he did shows in a tent using the, um, as it were, the, the small part people who are playing small parts in the main house. He got mm-hmm. them. Uh, to do massive parts in, in essentially this marquee, and mm. obviously, you know, from then the Minerva was born and became a, a, a physical theatre. Um, uh, but similarly, when uh, it was all changed in '98, they had no money to program um, the theatre, and they were thinking, in fact, of of it uh, being a cinema because in the off season, uh, it was a cinema during the winter. Um, and we made the case myself and my colleague Jacob Murray, that if he did that, if they, if the management did take, convert it, cinema, keep, keep it going as a cinema, it would kill the audience for the Minerva. It would be very difficult to get back. So we mm-hmm. persuaded them to give us very little money to put on a, a, a season of work uh, to complement the main house to keep the Minerva open. And one of these shows, well, the show we started with, much to the management's anxiety, was looped by Jeff Walter. Oh, wow. And um, we did it. The set literally cost three hundred and fifty quid. I mean, it was, you know, it was begged, borrowed, and stolen for various places around Chichester. Um, but it, luckily, it worked. It went really well, and uh, managed to transfer to London as a filler, mm. uh, which which means that a show came out early in the Hall Theatre uh, in the West End, and they offered us. We, we were just about to close. They offered us the, uh, the slot to play before another show for eight weeks, and, and we went. Um, so that was my first. Um, 
at the moment, sort of where I was breaking through as a director in my own right. Then it was a bit, you know, as doing bits and pieces over the next four years, trying to find my way and stuff. And my second big break came um, doing Abigail's Party. I did the first revival of Abigail's Party by Mike Lee in mm. 2002 in London, which was yeah. 25 years since it was originally done. Um, back to the um, uh, the theatre was originally created, Hampstead Theatre, uh, mm. and uh, the first time it had been, Mike had given the rights for it to be performed in London since uh, the original 1977. So it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and luckily that came off. And, and with the success of uh, Abigail's Party um, in 2002, I got a few people being in touch about, you know, doing projects and stuff. And one of them was this guy called Phil McIntyre, who I, who I knew who was a producer and a production manager and a, you know, man of many hats, really. Hmm. And he was he had produced um, Another Country by Julian Mitchell to great success. And he was wanting to bring it back. And he had the and he, but he couldn't bring it back on its own on its own because he'd literally just done it, you know, two years ago. I can't exactly remember the timing. So what he was wanting to do was he he was gonna um, do a season called Lost Generation, where he'd have Journey's End uh, uh, to start with, and then he'd bring in um, uh, another country to sort of be a compare and contrast under that umbrella theme, as I say, of Lost Generation. Mm. And then, for whatever reason, um, uh, th- uh, another country fell away, and it looks as if the whole project was going to fall apart. And then, luckily, I was looking at the frontispiece of the, the Penguin and noticed the opening date of the original, which was January 21st. 1929 and i realized this was sort of early 2003 and i realized that january 21st obviously january 21st 2004 would be the 75th anniversary to the night of the original opening of the show mm-hmm. and that was a hook and i said to phil we've got to you know do it on this get get a theater for that date for us to open and so we can really play the the, the, the this this anniversary card and make a real feature of it um, and luckily, through Hooper by Crook, he was he was able to do that, and and more importantly, he was able to give me. Um, although, in retrospect, I realize it was it was you know quite a difficult decision as a producer for him to take. He gave me complete license to cast the two leads, which were um, Stanhope and Rawley, with whoever I wanted. The, you know, the brightest young talent in London. It wasn't at all. You know, in the UK, it wasn't about getting as two stars to play those roles. Because historically, the issue with the play is those two roles are usually played by star actors who are too old for the roles. And therefore, the, the reality of the authenticity of the piece of these mm. two young men, Stanhope, the lead uh, character who leads, who, the, set is, the play is set in a trench, a company dugout uh, in the, the just before uh, Operation Michael in uh, March 1918, which was the last great German offensive before the tide turns and, uh, and the Allies um, uh, moved towards victory. And he, the, it's set around, it's basically set in this enclosed claustrophobic space underground around a table where Stanhope is the commanding officer and uh, he has his other cohort of other officers around him at various times. And Stanhope, we have to believe, prior to the First World War starting, has just left school. So, believably, he has to be 21, in my view. Similarly, the boy who arrives, who was a school friend, well, a school associate and friend of the family of Rawley, we have to believe he is 18. Mm. 
Um, and of course, that's very difficult uh, if you're trying to cast stars because very, I mean, it's slightly different now, but you know, you get Asa Bennett, as indeed, obviously, he was in the film. But anyway, my point is, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it, it would have put a real pressure if Phil had demanded that I have stars. And luckily, uh, he didn't. And we did this amazing um, audition process, where, uh, which lasted months, actually. So mm. when we got the comedy theatre, originally only for eight weeks, which was basically just to take advantage of the anniversary and, and move on, mm. um, we did this amazing audition process where we just, uh, over months, met, you know, I met Eddie Redmayne, um, uh, 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 Cumberbatch, uh, wow. uh, you, you name any actors of their, their generation, and I met them for the roles of either Stanhope or um, uh, Rawley in that in that uh, show, Andrew Scott, for example, as well, another guy. So it was just a brilliant, brilliant opportunity, and I was very fortunate that um, you know we we luckily cast exactly the right people, and and Phil was very. You know, it, there were certain producer elements to it. So around the two boys, I there are, you know, older figures, mm. and around the two boys, I had to, he was um, keen. I cast people who would have some sort of, um, you know, some sort of visibility, some sort of profile. And luckily, David Hay agreed to play Osborne. Paul Bradley agreed to play Trotter. Phil wow. Cornwall played Mason, um, and uh, we were able to, as I say, as in that sort of problems we created a package that, that made the whole thing work wow wow <laughs> that's fantastic i'm sorry who, who played um you had david haig and who played we had david uh, haig as um uh, as osborne who's the father figure in it yeah who's the um demand. uh we've got uh we had paul bradley play trotter we had phil cornwall play mason mm -hmm. um and i think yes the 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 other people were relatively unknown as well if i remember rightly hmm. yeah nice i mean um you must you must have met eddie redman and benedict cumberbatch before before their careers just like skyrocketed at this point or were they yeah but you well knew i mean if i remember rightly eddie had just left cambridge but they were they were they were hot and and in fact you know uh I knew Ben already, uh, and not. I don't know him that well. I mean, we we know each other to to, to say hello to. But um, uh, Ben, ben there'd been a lot of heat on Ben for years because even when I was doing Abigail's party, mm. um, we were rehearsing in a place that was the most bizarre place in some sense. It was above a sh shop, a parade of shops in mm -hmm. Camden, uh, not Camden, uh, just not too far away from Hampstead Theatre, mm. and. Um, uh, there's a big we used to go to it was a, a there was a two-story uh building the rehearsal rooms on the, the the second story and at the top of the staircase we went to the rehearsal room you turned a right to our rehearsal room and you turned a left to a bit from yoga studio uh, <laughs> which is obviously you can imagine absolutely baking so you, you know matter what whether it was outside every time you were, it was just this hot fetid steam came out of this big yoga studio <laughs> and ben was in there training because he you know he was really unbelievably committed to wow. uh, to, to make sure that he was going to be, you know, that, that once opportunity knocked, he would take advantage of it, and indeed he did. So, you know, fair play to him. Incredible talent. Yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I, lo I love the man dearly. He's very, very good. Um, so yeah, so in terms of the play, you know, as you you mentioned there, it's set in the trenches in northern France before the last German offensive, and before the Allies eventually did go to go on to victory. Um, and I think we mentioned earlier about 
the first thing I saw because I've watched the film as well with uh, Ace of Butterfield as well. I just thought we did. I thought it was very very good. Uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on that as well. But I, one thing that really struck me was the as particularly with Stanhope. You know, he he's been there for a very long time. So I think about three years, and you know, you can see that the war has really had a change on him. And yet he's. I think he's a very good example of someone who goes to the war, you know, fresh out of school. And of course that's been projected in rally as well. Someone 18 straight into the, the, the war thinking, Oh, this is my honor. I'm going to fight for my country. And yet Stanhope, I think is a representation of someone who's been through all that. And then he's got over the initial kind of honor of being there. And yet he's the reminder of someone who has been physically and emotionally affected by the war as a result of that and you can see he's a really changed man and then that and um yeah i think that's is that, is that a fair analogy do you think yeah i i, I think the key thing about the, the play i mean the, it's important to talk about rc sheriff at this point rc sheriff um was always destined uh to be an insurance agent like his dad his dad literally in his entire career moved 10 foot from the corner by the door as an insurance clerk to by the window um and that was the entirety of his life and and he he worked for i think the royal Summer alliance and and his son rc sheriff was robert Hendrick, was 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 destined to to um follow his footsteps but uh but but he'd always been interested in um uh in writing and in fact he um but but essentially uh, I'll, I'll rephrase that what happened was the war happened and what happened next was that he actually he joined the um, uh, the East Surrey Regiment, which was um, recruited at, at Kingston Town Hall. Mm-hmm. And the most important thing to think to, to think about the play because the play is, has come in for criticism about its officers, its elitists, its the upper class, and uh, you, you know, and, and um, you know, the working class are, 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 are you know patronised and marginalised within the show. Mm-hmm. My argument would be that. R.C. Sheriff wasn't. Uh, um, R.C. Sheriff was, was lower middle class. I'd imagine he was. Uh, he was a grammar school boy. He went to Kingston Grammar. He had no. Yeah, he uh, he 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 didn't have. You know, he wasn't uh, any. Uh, he was local as well. He lived in a place called Hampton Wick, just uh, north of Kingston. Yeah. And he had no affiliation to the public school system at all. I, there's no question. I'm sure he he rather eulogised it. He loved rowing. He was um, a big a big fan of rowing through basic life. Mm. Um, so yeah, he may have tipped his hat to the public school system, but the important thing about the war and the, the play is these were ordinary men off the street in extraordinary circumstances, all walks of life. And I think the thing um, about the play, as, as Sheriff uh, said himself, was when he, he uh, went to the war, he was not there for very long because just before Passchendaele, uh, he was walking a trench, and the ordnance exploded near him. And uh, and he was uh, it, he had fragments. He, had, he was fragged in the head. So and the injury meant that he was unable to after he returned to them, recovered. He was unable to return to the front. And he had a, throughout his life, he had um, and this is symptomatic of the play. This is why the play is written. He had great survivor's guilt because a lot of the people he knew were killed, mm. and. Uh, the play is based on people he served with. He said himself that when he sat down at his desk to write it, the ghosts 
of his colleagues would walk in and, and, and speak their voices. He, all, all he had to do was transcribe it. Um, and I think the key thing about Stanek is that, well, I think that the, the, the uh, important thing, that, that the, the trick in terms of my direction, in terms of the execution of the play, the, the, in, in terms of the trigger to get the all the actors in the right place was that my word for the uh, uh, their behaviour was um, was displacement. Mm. Each character is di is displacing their fear. They're all terrified, and each character, in different ways, is displacing their fear by filling their mind with something other than fear. So, mm. in Stanhope's case, it's work. And alcohol, you know, uh, he, he's a ferociously hardworking. He's, mm. you know, he's one of the reasons he is, um, uh, he is, he is, he's as uh, on the edge as he is, is he's too good for the uh, the authorities to give him time off. He's he's such a great soldier and a great leader of his men, such mm. a great example. It, it, you know, although obviously he is, you know, fraying around the edges. Uh, but in terms of actually, when he's called to arms, the call to execute his duties as a as an officer, he's tremendous. Mm. But obviously, the longer he he is in the front without any respite, the, the more effect he's going to be, and the effect is that he can't help himself but, but become more and more uh, addicted to alcohol. But the key thing about him is, yes, you're right. The the other thing that Sheriff was very keen on. It's a notion of hero worship that that Rawley, yes, he he wants to serve, but he primarily wants to serve with stand up. He wants to. It's, it's as if they're back in you know Eton on the playing fields yeah. of Eton, where two, he's two years or three years below. Uh, Rawley looks up to this heroic figure in the first of stand up, and he wants to pull on a shirt and run out to yeah. battle or onto the, the the playing field with with his hero. Um, and that's the tragedy. That's that. That's what gives the whole play. It's it works on two levels. You've got the, the meta narrative, obviously the war there in the background. At any moment, anybody leaves the stage, you think, well, they come back because they could be blown to smithereens. But the personal is about the terrible tragedy that that stand up is appalled that Rawley's there uh, for reasons that we can go into, and and uh, Rawley is. Um, is is distressed is you know uh, cannot believe and is 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 really um, um broken apart by the the fact that stand-up apparently has no wish for him to be there and uh serve with him at all doesn't really want him to be around in his business from one moment to the next um and that as i say drives the, the whole thing mm. as a there's a really lovely moment, uh, I think, in Act Two between Stanhope and Hibbert, where Hibbert comes to him with a complaint about neuralgia. And, yes, and uh, yes, and that whole scene. In fact, the first my first introduction to the play was actually seeing two of my classmates for A Level Drama do a, a duologue for that. Yes, and that stuck. That really stuck with me. Not not only because of like the, I mean, they did a very good job of it, but the quality of the text and everything that was going on um for anyone who hasn't read it um 
it's a brilliant scene where Hibbert, I think he's throughout the play, he's, you know, as you said earlier, David, like everyone's driven by fear, you know, and, and I think Hibbert exudes his, his fear quite without, without saying a word, I think in my, in my opinion, but uh, that scene, Hibbert comes to him trying to essentially say, I've got to go to the doctor. Hopefully they'll send me home and I can get away from all this. But Stanhope says, no, you're not going anywhere. You just have to see it out like the rest of us and be, do I think I think he said was like do the thing a decent man would do is the only thing a decent yeah. man would do, and uh, over the course of the scene, Stanhope sort of his layers of armor and hard exteriors they they fade away for just that brief moment, and he says brilliantly, um, slightly paraphrasing here, but he says brilliantly we're all we're all struggling with this. Every time I hear those noises out there in no man's land, every explosion, everything like that it makes me feel sick and everyone around here is exactly the same. So we have to fight this together rather than just trying to run away because who else is going to do it? Who else is going to win this war? And I think for that moment, it's that really brings the fear out. I think that the fear is kind of subdued, I think for a lot of the play, but then suddenly that moment happens and you see exactly like the core of, I, I would probably fair to say every soldier that did indeed go through that conflict would that would that be a fair thing to say yeah I mean, it's interesting I, I forgot to say actually that hibbert the only character who can't displace his fear is hibbert yeah and that's why he's uh, that's why every time you see him he's he's uh, uh, he, various degrees of terrified yeah and i think what you've what you've touched on there which is worth expanding upon is although he never really thought of being a, a writer prior to uh, you know, prior to, to after the war, after he had uh, you know his experiences, uh, after he'd had this watershed moment, as it was in many people's lives, um, he had a natural gift for not only language but and rhythm, but dramatic structure. So, mm. for example, what you just said there, the genius of that interaction between, and it's a short scene between uh, Hibbert and Stanhope, is although. Um, uh, it's a very short interaction. Um, there's in uh, there's enormous um, amounts of uh, of turning points within um, within the scene prior to the the end where um, uh, the two part. The reason it, it, in detail, what I mean by that is the beginning is as you say, Hibbert comes in, he's, he's summoned up the courage, but he's obviously terrified of him, terrified of being called a captain. But but his fear is so great. He cannot. Um, uh, he cannot uh, be quiet any longer. He's got to announce that he must leave, as he says. And of course, the, the, the first part that's the confrontation. It's Sam saying, "No, you're not. You're, you're not ill. You're, you're making it up. It's, it's all fake." And in order to um, to uh, call his bluff, Stanup, uh, also showing how unpredictable um, and, and non-conformity is, you know. He, Stanhope pulls his gun, his service resolver, and threatens to blow Hibbert's brains out. Mm. And he counts. Uh, he counts down to the point it was going to do that. And Hibbert um, uh, nails his courage to the post and, and manages to uh, um, re refuse to give in such that uh, uh, Stanhope doesn't pull the trigger. He, he cannot believe that uh, Hibbert has been brave enough, you know, and would prefer to get shot in the head rather than to continue in the trenches. And that moment changes the whole 
complexion of the scene. As you say, stand-up then becomes very understanding of of uh, Hibbert and wanting to connect with him and wanting to to persuade him to stay, as you say, it's, it's the right thing to do. Mm. Um, and uh, it's evocative because I think a lot of people, because it is only one set at one table and, um, you know, uh, the, the characters moving in, 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 and it is, you know, it is quite wordy. A lot of people assume that it's rather static, but because he had, he had such an instinctive sense of dramatic structure, Mm. Uh, that scene is a perfect example of how the audience are kept in a constant state of tension from almost the start of the play mm. uh, towards the very end. So yeah, it's a, it's um, it was a it was a great uh, example, and, and it was also very real. I mean, a lot of you know, interestingly enough, Sheriff himself said he was Hibbert when he was asked what character do you see you as. He wow. always did say Hibbert because he would he would always be honest about the fact that he was petrified and his his writing um you know his letters home which are, are still a, available to um uh to, to read a, re- reflect that mm. yeah and i think that moment as well i mean i think it's it's just i think from, from an audience perspective it's just a reminder of the horror of everything and you know you, some of us you know we look back now you know the war the first world war was over 100 years ago and everything and we, we find it hard to sort of get to sort of get to terms with exactly what happened you know because a lot of people who did fight that war sadly are no longer with us but i think when you've got a genius like rc sheriff and a play like that talking about this particular subject i think that scene amongst many in the play just really encapsulate like the the visceral and the sort of outcry there's a, there's a real physical and visceral thing in that scene about how the war really that about just just the effects i think of if you want to know just a small sample of what that experience was all about then that scene or in fact this whole play is a very good example of just what went on and what exactly was what what's going on now i mean i think you know i think the we, we're yeah, fortunate to wrong expression, but one of the reasons, you know, not only was, if I do say so myself, not only was the production very good, but also culturally, it uh, when we re- when um, we revived the play in two thousand four, culturally it also uh, landed at the right time as well because of the Iraq War. Mm-hmm. Um, it was there was this enormous. Um, uh, connection between you know this there's this the audience had a palpable sense of what it must be like uh through watching Jenny's end of what it must be like for those involved in uh, the conflict in Iraq to be in, in you know what it must be like to be under fire and indeed now if you did the play now it, the, mm-hmm. the the visceral sense of what it must be like to be in uh, Ukraine and I think the most important thing about conflict well particularly that type of conflict the first world war that that heightens uh, uh, the the tension of the whole thing is that is that um it's a mix which you, obviously you can't read off the page but it works mm. so powerfully in performance mm. is the mix between deathly silence where nothing's happening to uh, all out uh, uh, oblivion and you know incredible you know gunfire and ordnance coming down and, and and this this horror show of a soundscape as people are under a bombardment mm. um, or under fire, 
And I think that 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 particularly, which uh, again he works so uh, you know effortlessly in the the play. There's there's one moment, for example, which you know about where they do a raid, mm. and I uh, was we 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 didn't do it exactly real time, but I was keen that the audience had a real sense of the time it would take for the raid to take place. So when the, the and two two actors go off, you know, two two of the characters go off to do the raid, um, and we just kept the stage empty, and the audience remained engaged because we told the journey of the, the raid, i.e., the characters going to the front line, throwing grenades, jumping into a, 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 the Germans' trenches, uh, having small arms fired, grabbing a German, dragging him back into the. Uh, the British trench, then being um, uh, the sergeant major and other soldiers grabbing the um, uh, German soldier to to throw him down the the uh, the uh, trench trenches until they threw them down the stairs of the company dugout where the scene starts again. So my point is that that all this all those actions I've just explained to you we did in sound um, and light uh, and smoke. Uh, with nobody on the stage, and yet the audience, because we because we told that story so well, and because the um, the, the the writing of the play was so good that it really uh, gave us permission to really take the chance to see if that would work. Mm. The audience were at the edge of the seat, and there was nobody on stage. It was just they could see what was happening in their mind's eye, and it it, it was an incredibly evocative moment. And as you say, just just symptomatic of so many moments of play that are just so brilliantly yeah. dramatically constructed and yet they don't really come to they don't really have the potency and the sort of the effect on your own sensibility unless you see them in the theater because they just don't you, you just you just don't have the full sensation either the, the, the you know the the, the the all the effects working on you in the way that it does when mm. you're obviously uh, witnessing uh, the production in the theater yeah, it's just that must have been such a beautiful image, you know, just you know, the sound and you know, no actors on stage. I can, I can sort of get a, a picture of it now, actually, just hearing the the sounds and everything. And then they're coming back on and letting your mind and your imagination do the work. I mean, that's, you know, that's that's a skill, I think, that you've demonstrated there as a director in your in your shows, I think, to sort of keep the imagination rolling as well. Well, I think it's a lot to do with the I mean, I, I was very lucky with the, the colleagues I work with. So, you know. Jonathan Fenton, the designer. Uh -huh. I was very keen that you, I was very keen that the uh, design. We went on a couple of field trips where we followed RC Sheriff's company throughout um, their uh, time in in France and Belgium. Mm. Uh, and um, there was we went to one place uh, which I've now near Arras. I've never forgotten. It's a Canadian. I've never forgotten what it's called. It's a Canadian. Um, monument and cemetery, and and they 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 have some trenches, some ex, uh, trenches and tunnels still mm. yeah, in play there. That they, they the, the Canadian um, still curate this particular cemetery site. Anyway, there was a, a a dugout in there that was incredibly small, and I said, Johnny, we've got to we've got to replicate this, uh, and yet still obviously make it work in the theatre. So he did that. So the whole thing felt fairly claustrophobic. You as an audience thought you were in this this uh, this really darkened uh, claustrophobic space with the actors. You needed to. That was extensive by the notion that you didn't have any sort of theatre like Jason Taylor, the, the incredible lighting designer, gave you the impression the whole 
image was being lit by candlelit. So that was actually quite unnerving for the actors because they came on stage with the tech and they didn't have any key light. They had nothing out the front. It was coming from below them or on the sides. Mm-hmm. So they, they never, they, they couldn't. Usually if you're on stage, as I'm sure you know, you can look to the key light, you know you're being lit. But the all the actors never had a sense of being lit because we were always we were always lighting them from beyond, you know, outside of their eye line. Um, so he did a brilliant job, and then as importantly, uh, J, uh, Greg Clark, who's a sound designer, just you know, so much of uh, the story of the show was told in the the story of uh, the soundtrack that that the sound designer that Greg created because it wasn't just generic gunfire. You know, there was. Mm. There was every, every every moment had a life in sound of its own uh, that that just accentuated just quite how terrifying and unnerving and real the whole experience was. Mm. Yeah, and so when you so that brings me on to sort of when you work with actors and you mentioned there about earlier about the how to play the tension and how to play sort of the dynamic moments in the play where you want to create something as visceral and as realistic as possible to do justice not only the text but to the historical event so how do you what like what's the secret to playing tension and what's the best way of achieving that well i think the key thing i think the first thing i i've done a a lot of my career has been um uh, well it's when I started, I, you know, so I came to the fall with Othello in '93 at the uh, Edinburgh Festival, uh, and, and a lot of my early work was about being an event because you want to get noticed. But then, mm. once I found my feet, it became essentially um, it's about the words, it's about making uh, you know a lot of my shows are they just seem to be people talking and nothing uh, nothing else happens, and yet the they're the most compelling conversations you've ever heard. Uh, and the way you do that is, it, 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 first of all, it depends on the writing. The writing has to sing. It has to be, it has to be musical in terms of uh, have the potential to to hold the audience in the palm of the hand for the length of the, the production goes on for. Journey Zen is an example of that. And so where I first started with is I look at the orchestra. I, I treat a piece of text like a, um, uh, like a musical score and all the punctuation uh on the whole i mean it's just you know i break my own rules but i, I the first instance I, I look to attend to all the punctuation of all stops yeah the commas uh the the hyphens to um to investigate where what that rhythm you know this is, this is something i'm negotiating actors so obviously you, you don't want the actors to feel held hostage by you know uh that you're dictating as it were the rhythm the 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 orchestration of what I'm doing, and you know, I, I I'm not free enough. You're you're holding me hostage. Um, my argument would always be, yeah, I'm going to talk about make sure you play that full stop, but, but you know, um, and make sure you play that comma, make sure you play that that beat, and make sure you know the difference between a beat and a pause and a silence, mm. because because uh, because that's what the writer's written, and I think and I think in this particular writing is good enough that i think it will it will give us something but by the same to- the same token i'm not saying that your interpretation that that um you know use the act i'm not going to hold you hostage about your interpretation just because i'm very keen that we that we that we, we investigate the 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 notation that that um you know the music of what sheriff's doing i'm not saying that that's got to um uh, you know, compromise your interpretation. For example, you know, in the musical scores, you can have different violinists playing the lead violin, and they can they can have different interpretations of that. They can have different characters, and I think 
the proof is in the pudding on the number of recasts we have of Johnny Depp. You know, particularly a character like Osborne, you had so many different actors play Osborne, and yet they were all different. You know, David Haig, who has five kids, really felt like a father figure. Malcolm Sinclair, uh, he looks as if he's come from the 1920s, really seemed to play the B of the period. Um, uh, Michael Sibbery, who was a big rugby player, he, he uh, uh, oh, was it Michael Sibbery? Yeah, it was Michael Sibbery. Anyway, so, so, so my, that's my point, is that there's a variety of interpretations possible. I was very keen that, as I say, we really investigated um, uh, the the orchestration of, of Sheriff's text. And then what happened was that the, the, the kind of the tension created itself. So, for example, uh, Harold Pinter, apparently afterwards, uh, or Harold Pinter commented that he uh, really um, discovered his, uh, the, the, the really understood the notion of the beat, the pause, the silence on mm. uh, what uh, on witnessing journey's end, and th- what I mean by that is that each of those are determined a place and time. So when it was a beat, as I said, obviously it would just be a bit short, but then a pause, it would need to be longer, and then a silence need to be very long. And it was in particularly the silences, but in the text that really make the difference in terms of if you're brave enough to just be, uh, to just allow um, the the attention to build and allow nothing to be said, where you kind of almost risk people thinking, you know, characters have dried, mm. um, then that uh, really played great dividends. And I think the minute we really discovered, as I say, the orchestration of, uh, uh, or our way of orchestrating Sheriff's text and, and, and really, really investigated, interrogated and, and exploited the pauses, beats and silences. That's the moment that the tension uh, really sort of came to the fore and, and really began, began to take hold. Mm. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, uh, do you think you, you'll step into Journey's End for a fourth time and, and bring it back to London? Well, <laughs> it's interesting. It's, it's, a, it's a life... Uh, it's been a life-defining, career-defining show, obviously, because you know we didn't we we we've done it more than three times actually. Because we, in, when we did it originally in two thousand and four to two thousand and six, West End, mm. we were accused of touring the West End because we played we played the uh, comedy, we played Playhouse, we played the Duke of York, we played the Ambassadors, and we had different cards for each in various you know formations. Mm. Um, and I I've absolutely loved it, I, and and it's particularly it's it's a really um, it's a it's a it's a unique experience because you 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 know it's real you know it's you know the the, the show is is written by a veteran that's completely authentic and the effect it has on the audience is uh, is unprecedented because they know that as well and and at the end because obviously you know without you know spoiler alert every dies at the end <laughs> uh, it, and and the way we did the end we. Uh, created our own uh, ending because we had to because the we we didn't have enough money to do the ending that the play was written at mm. and if I do say so myself it's a moment of genius and as a result of that um, I feel even more attached to it that, that we you know the the, the play's a thing we we we, uh, we didn't um, you know, we we didn't improve Journey's End with the ending we created, but we made the play absolutely, the effect the play was having on everybody crystallise in a moment 
that just uh, slayed the audience and every time uh, from the first moment we we opened the show, we, we were in previews for the show to the to the last moment we closed and mm. and they, I, i've never been involved in a uh, a situation like that before where a you know a particular way we ended the show had such a, uh, a vivid effect but equally also uh, such a show where the audience uh, physically in certain moments were were literally so rung through at the end and so and were so emotionally uh, engaged and, and obviously broken by the experience and and provoked it was you know as i say at the time of the iraq war particularly um it was it was it really felt very live to people that that um our soldiers were fighting in foreign fields thousands of miles away uh, in these sort of circumstances mm. well i I, I really would if you ever decide to jump into it again i will be there on the front row with the first night <laughs> <laughs> no I, I mean that i'm not just saying that because you're here david honestly i'd love to i haven't seen this play um done yet but i will hopefully i will in in the coming in the future um yeah so, it will it will make a return it's, it's too good not to absolutely absolutely um so when it comes to um your sort of the rehearsal period like when you work with actors and stuff not on journey's end but also in the other plays that you've done um what's your process in in the rehearsal room do you kind of let the actors just do their own thing then you sort of uh like correct them in certain places or do you have a certain thing you want them to do how do you like to sort of run well basically i i uh it's become fairly methodical now in in, you know because i've been doing it a long time and i I assisted a lot of people and sort of i'd like to think i I stole their best their best bits. Um, the way it works is usually I've done a lot of commercial, but you know, Jenny's Ed was a commercial piece. We have limited amounts of time, so I used to rehearse a four week period. And mm. the first thing I'd say to the actors before we start is that we'll only have we'll, we'll only be able to go through the nature of the time we have available to us before we go through this. We only have um, to, uh, the opportunity to do this three times, mm. and to go through the whole play three times. So the first time, obviously, we're going to work our way through. Find that make sure that we understand, you know, that we understand who we are in the in, in the, the scenes. You know, start generating characters, start generating relationships, blah blah. Uh, that's obviously the book. The second time, you need to be just being aware, be sort of half on book, half off book. And then the third time, we need to be running through it off. Um, and what I do is I break the play up into bite-sized chunks, mm-hmm. and we just go through those. We go through those bite-sized chunks three times but in various forms the bite-sized chunks will be individuated the first uh, the first go through so it's very small uh, bits we do at a time just to make sure everybody feels that we're we're spending enough time on every single moment and they they they, they can feel they can leave uh, having had the initial uh, inter- engagement with that with that moment leave feeling satisfied that they they they, they know which path uh, they're on and that they feel they're going in the right direction and then the second time you probably put some of those bite size chunks together, you just expand the scenes a bit. Um, and then there's the, the end of certain bits of the second time you start running bits and pieces as well. And then the third time you're sort of you're working on acts basically, or or mm-hmm. in Jenny's end's case, sort of scenes, the whole complete scenes, and then running those scenes and then running the acts mm-hmm. uh, and then doing run throughs. And it's very but I feel that it's important to try and get as many run throughs at the end. Of course. To really make sure the actors feel ownership of the play and what their 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 role within it prior to the theatre because obviously you go to theatre and then it's all taken apart again as you uh, 
uh, try and, as you put the technical evidence in place, as mm. you want to ensure that there's, there's as much muscle memory as possible prior to leaving the rehearsal room so that they can hit the floor running when all the technical evidence in place and running the, the show again. In terms of working with actors individually, I think the key thing is to be really open to what they're doing and who they are. So, for example, uh, Jeff Spectrum, who played stand-up, who I've worked with uh, twice, is, is just the most amazing actor. Um, I mean, he was, I mean, we wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been the show it was without him. Mm. Um, and he's a good example of it. I mean, I'll give you a case in point in that Jeff is, uh, comes to a, a show completely open to, to what he's going to discover in the text. He doesn't, I remember um, being intrigued that he didn't feel the need that, you know, I said, oh, I could go to, I could, you know, go to Belgium, Belgium or whatever, or this, other. He, you know, that, he didn't, he, he wasn't, he, you know, he would have been happy to if it was possible, but he wasn't, he wasn't driven to do that. What he was driven to do was just find the, sh the, the, the scenario, find the story, find stand up for himself mm. as he was working through it on the floor with the others and, and in terms of his own work at home yeah. on the text. And, um uh what was brilliant about him is he's uh is he moves and thinks very he sorry he moves in the rehearsal so he he his 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 uh his consolidation of what he's doing happens very quickly in the rehearsal room so uh and, and he's incredibly detailed so so what would happen was that i was able to we were able to to engage in a way that we could get more, he was able to do more and more changes of thought in shorter and shorter, um, um, uh, in shorter and shorter time spans, mm. uh, or sections of text. And a classic example of this is as a another very famous scene where Stanup's drunk and he's he's being put. He's in, it's a, it's at the end of Act One. He's in a scene with his uh, with Osborne and. Uh, he's he starts getting very distressed and agitated at the end of this scene, and at one stage, uh, I was going um, to he he was going to run out. It all becomes very it all becomes very uh, fractious between, or potentially um, uh, it becomes it becomes it becomes quite um, uh, unnerving between uh, him um, and. Uh, Osborne because because Stanham starts behaving very badly. Anyway, mm, yeah. in this uh, scene, there is a run of lines which are basically a half phrases, five half phrases that Stanham has as, as he's you know he's sort of losing his thread a bit. He's becoming more um, uh, he's, he's, he's more on edge because of the drink. He's becoming uh, much more antagonistic. He's becoming much more erratic in his behaviour. So you've got these five lines he has, which are essentially a half line, which obviously goes for a ten line period with, with including Osborne's instructions. And on each of these half lines that stand up high, I believe was the I told Jeff in the uh, preview period were the crux of the play. If we if he was able to get all these five half lines, which I believed had a completely different, not just a slight subtle shade change of thought, but a completely different thought. Mm. If you got those. Then I, I then I thought we'd have a hit in the head because it would be it would be uh, utterly uh, gripping. We would not be able to uh, take our you know we'd be enthralled by by what was happening because it was it was just so astonishing. Mm. Needless to say, incredibly difficult because he was meant to be incredibly angry, then pleading, then then 
bad. And, yeah, I can't remember the, the different, you know, the different, uh, but they, they were all, um, these firefighters were massively difficult. And he had like nanoseconds in order to make the sketches. Hmm. As we went through the previews, we had about nine previews, I think. I, uh, he, we come to me in the, the note session, he'd go, well, how's that? And I go, well, you got two, you're nearly there. And, and the, 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 uh, genius of the, the the sign of a great relationship between a director and an actor is where a director is is not giving up interrogating an idea. You know, I don't care if we have to drop an idea if it doesn't work. But if if I haven't seen an idea work, I'm just going to still push for it. But the great thing is where it's like a football coach, I suppose, where the player, the actor in this case, Jeff, was was undaunted by that and was still pursuing. Rather than giving up and going, he's, he's you know he's being a tyrant. He's, you know he's not he's, he's this is impossible. Blah blah. I mean, at one stage he did think I was potentially asking the impossible. The point is <laughs> that he kept on at it, and the show before we uh, opened um, the final rehearsal. So the show before the final rehearsal, he hit all five of the notes I've just described. Hey. And he asked me next, and I said, that's it. And I said to them there, you know, if they, whether the uh, critics like or loathe this production, this could not be any better. This is exactly any better than this. It's just absolutely sensational because, as I say, and because the idea is he hit those five notes and they worked. They really, he was, it was just astonishing the, the potency of, of watching this uh, this 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 young mind young mind uh, go through all these various emotions in just a, a in a heartbeat uh, of a of a moment in time, mm-hmm. and, um, and and it was very distressing as an audience member to witness, and, and for him to take us there, be able to technically execute it was amazing. So my point is, it's very extended, um, very laborious uh, explanation. Is that the way I work with actors is to um, is to ensure that they, everyone who's working with me understands the collaboration, and then I and that I will be very detailed. It starts, but that we we just explore, just gentle questioning, gentle, um, and then as the, the rehearsals progress, the questions I ask, the, the detail I suggest is possible within what they're doing becomes greater and greater, mm. to the point at which you know uh, the. The, the shading at the end of, of my production, the, the, when my best shows are up and running, uh, is infinitesimal because, as I say, the, the actors are, are literally doing something uh, on every single thought they're having. Um, but the key thing also is within that ex- within that experience is to recognise that actors are different types of people and you as a director to ensure you're enabling them to feel as if they... Uh, are in the best place for them to flourish. So I've worked a lot with um, uh, actors who are very, very smart and make great headway with the text very early and they get it and they understand what they're doing. Um, But in the same show, I've worked with another lead character who's less, you know, not that less um, uh, uh, intellectually able to to run ahead with the work they're doing. because they are incredibly, they they have a natural instinct for the mm. material, and and, and, and that, that they they're not quite as able to 
explain what they're doing. They 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 just absorb what uh, they're meant to be doing. They 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 just trans transform those observations into the delivery of the piece. Now that can be quite a difficult scenario. I was involved in a play with um, one lead, as I say, was racing ahead, uh, having uh, intellectually got to grips with what was required and was making progress. The other seemed to be uh, slightly stalling. But I knew the key thing was to ensure that the person racing ahead understood that the 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 other lead actor was a different type of animal, but that that I would they could rely on me to ensure I got them uh, that they would be absolutely up to the mark and, and on toe to toe and it's completely at the same level uh, as the person who who was racing ahead by the time that we got on stage and, and luckily that's what happened that that the 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 person who was more instinctively connected to the text and to the, um the story that he's the character um it was actually um sensational on the, the floor in the end so it's just it, it, personality management uh, is absolutely crucial and something you're always learning about even now I mm. still find myself in a rehearsal room, learning new things, how best to uh, uh, get the best out of uh, the, the people you're working with to make sure that they can uh, give the best possible account of themselves in the production when they hit the floor. Man, that was like a that was like a masterclass in in the rehearsal room. How <laughs> 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 to run a rehearsal room? <laughs> wow, I you know I I'm. Yeah, th thank you for that. That was that was really great. No, I really really appreciate everything you're saying there. I think I'm one of those actors that I go, as you said earlier, I go off impulse rather than, and I sort of let the scene sort of happen to me in the context. I like to absorb stuff, and then that goes through the movement, and then that transfers into the lines. And I think, yeah, God, that, yeah, that was like a, a masterclass in how to run a rehearsal room. That was, that was great. <laughs> It hasn't always happened like that. Let's be, you know, it's uh, sometimes, you know, I've had some rocky rides, but uh, you know, on the whole, the best, the best experience I've, I've had is, is being able to, uh, yeah, create where there's there's only one thing at at stake. The play that is the best. You're always trying to make a definitive production. There's no point in taking on a piece of work, particularly the work level I've worked, if you're not trying to make a definitive production. Yeah. And as long as everybody's got that in mind, it's uh, it's amazing what can be achieved. And I've been very fortunate in the the various uh, productions I've I've produced. Um, but the, the the key thing, really, you know, I always say this to uh, drama students I work with, is actually to be stuck in one word. Um, it's a very difficult word to uh, constantly you know, to be to be. Uh, always in the moment with and the key thing is to listen if you listen and you're in, in the moment and you're just responding to what you're getting then you're in the best possible place to make the the the, uh, the, the story work as effectively as possible but it's really difficult to do that because obviously your brain is 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 wanting to uh, comment on what you're doing or is you know it's doing a hundred other different things as well as listening, but the, the more you listen and, and do that simple act of responding to what you're getting and then the other, your partner or the other people in the, the space respond to what they're getting. It's amazing how that simple act can make such a difference from the very beginning. Mm, absolutely, absolutely, that's amazing. Um, I know time is against this, uh, David. I know you've got to shoot off to do other things today, but I just have 
Do you have time for just two quick fire round questions? Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, of just before we get, thank you for that. I really enjoyed listening to you today. It's been just, it's been a, a huge privilege for me. So thank you for sharing your. No, right. no, well, no worries, Oliver. I'm glad you've enjoyed it. No, I really, really did. Really, really did. So just two quick fire questions just to finish. Um, first of all, what was, can you describe for me that moment where you're at the Tonys in 2007 and Journey's End is announced as the winner and you're there on stage with your Scottish trousers? And, <laughs> uh, and can you, can you just, I know you didn't get a chance to speak. So I don't know if the Tonys were like that you're pushed on time for acceptance speeches in, in, just in the states but i think in general but can you describe that moment where you heard journey's end being uh announced as a winner at the tonys it was it was amazing but interesting enough it was the it was the opening night on uh broadway that was the most amazing experience because i mean it sounds so uh ridiculous to say this but actually at the tonys i was um I mean, I I would never have spoken because the the the, the best revival, Tony goes to the producer and the producer spoke and mm. fair play Bill Haber who produced it, um you know he he lost quite a bit of money on that show and and, and uh, you know oh, really? he he was he was he was wanting to say that war was wrong and he got the opportunity at the tennis to say that and you know, fair play to him I've got I've got no worries I didn't have to speak. Interesting that's the thing that was on my mind was that I, with the, there's quite a fierce amount of under-rigging wearing those shoes with braces and stuff and the waistcoat. <laughs> the waistcoat, the waistcoat wasn't fitted properly. You can see the, you should never see the shirt under the waistcoat between the trousers and the, the trues and the, the waistcoat. So I was completely, despite being absolutely on cloud nine, for whatever reason, um, my brain was just going, it was just thinking to itself, oh, that's, that's not the creative right to it. I'm not wearing this. Disaster, and I think, you know, why did I put myself out before I could possibly, you know, before before I had the opportunity to go on stage? Anyway, so that was what's going through my my then. The opening I will just briefly go on is the reason I'm so because obviously it was make or break. It was a big deal with states. We, it was it was, it was from Broadway standards getting to the states was by the seat of the pants. I couldn't cast anybody who is British, who, who didn't live in New York, or the possibility of living in New York. I could bring any of the original cast over because of that. Um, mm. And there's no idea how it would go with them, because obviously it's about a war that they didn't really have any connection with, the same way as they were with Vietnam or, uh, or Iraq, for example. But um, uh, the first night party was at this restaurant, and the producer, Bill Haver, when the reviews came out, because the reviews come out at midnight um, on the wires, and everybody, you know, in New York, everybody gets to hear before they're actually published. He was taken into the side room to, to show the reviews. And when he came out, and the, the place was packed because they didn't want to spend too much money on the first time past because, again, there wasn't that much money to spend. They had no idea how successful the show was going to be. So the place was packed. He's in the side room. Everybody's looking at the store of the side room. He comes out, and like a gladiatorial arena, you know, something like gladiator. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the guys uh, puts up his thumb and you know puts his thumb up or down uh, <laughs> for you know hit or miss. Yeah. And he puts up his uh, he puts up his thumb. There's a whole cheer. And then uh, Hugh Dancy, who played uh, stand up in that production, he stood on a chair and at the, he was and he read the review of a BlackBerry with the entire of the New York Times because the New York Times is, is a review that really matters in New York. Mm. He read the review in the New York Times, standing on a chair with the rest of the cast around him and, and myself and the rest of our creative teams, and Magella Hurley, who was a marvellous dialect coach, was there as well. 
and um uh, and and as he was reading it everybody was taking photos crowding around us and it was just it was just the most uh incredible one of the most apart from obviously both of my kids marrying my wife one of the most incredible nights of my life is unbelievable um and so that's that's the memory that will really live with me because because it it was there was no guarantees with with that show on broadway that it would it would get the reaction that it would and for, mm. for it to be quite so well received was uh, it was it was just uh, mind-boggling and, and incredibly humbling and just so sensational to share with those guys that we did who who deserved all the accolades they got because they they, they really did uh, do an amazing job so that's that's my answer to that sorry ollie what's the last one <laughs> no no so don't don't apologize that was great and i think i'm not sure if you you probably answered this question for me but the last question was what's been an experience or experiences you've had you've had in your career that you'll never forget uh that's it well there's a, a number of things i'm being, I'm being very fortunate so most recently um i've worked at the gate theater in dublin which is an amazing theater set up in the um and uh very well uh, and i did this uh, play called the Gili concert um by tom murphy who in ireland um is revered is is revered in the same way that brian freel is um but his work doesn't really travel to the UK as well as Brian Friel, primarily because it's quite dark and it's 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 you know it's, it's quite provocative. It doesn't it doesn't have the perceived charm that that Friel's work uh, does. Uh, it's it's a lot more uh, it's you know it's a harder experience for a, a UK audience possibly. Although um, and to be honest, I was given this play the Gili concert, which is a which is Gili was a famous opera singer. Who sort of stepped into the shoes of Caruso, and it's 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 a place again set in one room, three characters, and it's the 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 the, the, um, the play is basically a uh, Irish uh, developer. And this is sort of in the early eighties. Uh, comes to a sort of English is in set in Dublin, English uh, sort of you know he's a sort of he's a medicine man really he's, a, he's kind of he's, a, he's he's you're not quite sure what he does he's a he's a cod psychologist is possibly the best thing with a system that is meant to help people anyway long story short is mm. this play i read it and i just didn't understand it i found it confusing <laughs> it's just i couldn't see how it's gonna work uh i uh, was invited to meet um tom in dublin i met him he was a, an amazing uh, guy really um fantastically uh you know, eloquent and friendly and human. Um, but he was wary because, you know, I didn't really know his work and I was going to be coming to a prestigious uh, Irish theatre to do what is perceived to be his, you know, seminal piece of work. Mm. Um, and then I worked with, uh, we agreed to move forward and then I worked with um, three amazing Irish actors. But as, as you know, the Irish Times said, I was uh, an Englishman, uh, doing an Irish classic by a, a revered Irish playwright uh, in one of the, you know, totemic uh, Irish venues. Uh, what, what could I, how could I, how could it possibly work? And the, the great thing about that was that through, um, you know, close work with the actors, really close work and paying attention to Tom and really being being brave enough to ask, the, you know, what, what other people could have, would have considered dumb questions to Tom about absolutely everything that confused me about play 
this amazing piece of work. And again, you know, supported by an astonishing soundtrack by Greg Clark. So what I'd had, so the reason I go on about this detail is it, is it, it is one of the most um, extraordinary. I've had many, you know, Abigail's party, uh, as I say, at Hampstead working, you know, against all the odds, 25 years on, uh, the philanthropist at the Donmar, uh, Loot originally when I did it in 98, um, what the butler saw, the American planner did it at Theatre Royal Bath, and then uh, yeah, previously I'd done it on Broadway as well, and I had the Theatre Club. All of these are amazing moments, but it really sort of came to a head with the Gigli concert in 2015, because it really was against all odds, because A, I didn't immediately have a sensibility of, uh, uh, and I'm, I, I kind of, I couldn't, as it were, hear the tune of um, the Geely concert to begin with. And B, I was uh, uh, putting myself in a very, um, uh, you know, potentially dangerous situation because I had all this, uh, there was so much at stake for everybody involved, for, for this show to work again, to, you know, because, because actually it's got a very particular ending. The, the show had never been put on, the Geely concert had never been put on where people thought could work, that was was where where the the end had been completely resolved in the way that people thought it was meant to and indeed that Tom Murphy the writer uh, uh, intended and we did that we made the ending we work that we made uh, the whole thing work and I think that uh, that um, is my greatest uh, one of my greatest memories because um, against all odds uh, and against, you know, not my best judgment, but against my real concerns that I'd be able to deliver this production, we had this most extraordinary experience. And and the other thing was just getting to know Tom, who died a few years later, he died in 2018, mm. because he was a real inspiration to me in terms of he was so um, committed. It was he was he was so uh, uh, uncompromising about his work, his sensibility as a playwright. What, where, what he, what he was intending to achieve with his writing, and he wouldn't be swayed by, you know, commercial aspects or, you know, he was, he was, he was a purist, and uh, he was enormously influential on in me, and I was, you know, very glad to have not only um, met him but, but had su such a extraordinary time working with him, and so that kind of is the moment that, 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 in the light of everything I've done, that really stands out because it really was. Uh, as I say, uh, uh, something that I didn't think would have the outcome that it did. It was extraordinary. That was magnificent. And, you know, <laughs> I, you know I think a blessing for those experiences, you know, and everything, and just the gifts that he gave you as well, working on that show as well. You know, that must have been, must have been tremendous. But, wow. Thank you. Thank you, David. No, <laughs> this, has been, this has been so much fun and, and so inspiring as well. Like you talking about the play, the rehearsal room and everything and just it's really helpful for actors like myself and my listeners also fellow actors about how how do you work with directors like what do you need in the rehearsal room how can we how can we just sort of make the most of this time and make the best show that we can and you know you've given a really eloquent and really brilliant way of how actors can just explore themselves in the room and just know that the director is there for them and how you can work together to create something special and you know that's yeah, so that's down to just not only just your talent, but also just everything that you've that you've done over the course of your career. And I want to, I just I'm really lucky to have you on today. And I just want to thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on. And 
yeah this has been one of my favorite episodes to do and um <laughs> and uh no seriously and again i'm not just saying that because you're here i've really really enjoyed it and thank you for your time and and please just please do ask the sheriff's journeys and just one more time please i know i know, <laughs> you do, I, know I, know, I know you've done it a few times now but sixth seventh eighth time it's it's calling you back. I've got it here. It's like it's calling you back. It's calling yeah, you back. yeah. No, it's uh, it's uh, it's been a great. I mean, interestingly enough, RC Sheriff then went on to become uh, um, the uh, most successful uh, until um, uh, Richard Curtis arrived. He was Britain's most successful screenwriter. Really, uh, and he went from a small house, uh, as I say, in Hampton Wick, to a large mansion that he left. To- to Isha County Council for the arts. He lived in a, a private road in Isha. Um, and it was meant to be a, 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 a become an art centre, essentially. But instead, they sold it off into, I think it was six or nine separate mansions. Mm. Then the, um, they then set up a trust in his name, which I still think, I think it does give art response, but it's not, it's not quite what he intended. But I, I think <laughs> that, uh, when they found themselves this, with this... Um, uh, this extraordinary uh, uh, house in their possession. They weren't really going to. Uh, they were going to commercialise that and, <laughs> uh, and 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 monetise it rather than uh, uh, make it into what he wanted. But yeah, so yeah, it's been an amazing experience, and I've, yeah, I've been so glad to have done Jimmy's and I'm so glad to. Uh, I've been very fortunate to have numerous shows that, that um, as you said, worked incredibly well and. And as uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have changed the moment of them. They, they, mm. All the gods were smiling in certain shows. It just they, the stars aligned to allow certain shows to really work. And, Absolutely. And have the life they did. Absolutely. Well, please, please keep going. Please keep, <laughs> please keep going. Cheers. No, no, that's very good, man. Thank you. Um, no worries. I, all the best. Got, nice to meet you. Yeah, and you. Well, I, best I just, of luck with the rest of the podcast. And what? When? When is this out? What's how? How do you? Uh, it should. Should go out by the end of today, if not first thing tomorrow. Um, so I have some time just to look it over and then uh, put some things together, put it out on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and stuff, and then uh, we'll go from there. But yeah, if you just hang on, I'll, I'll say goodbye to you once more after finish the recording. But I'll just uh, I'll see this off now. But yeah, it'll be out soon. I'll send you links and everything to it, so uh, you can feel free to share it around and do it with it as you please. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> thanks, John. Yeah, no very, well, well, very well done on setting this up. Congratulations for your initiative. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you very much for your time. And guys, thank you for watching. Uh, well, thank you for listening. Uh, it's just audio only today. Uh, but yeah, uh, thank you for listening, guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, I will be back soon. This has been the Uncensored Critic Podcast. We'll be back. And once again, Mr. David Grinley, thank you, sir. No worries. All the best. Cheers. Bye-bye.